The following audio is from Living Acts Church in Tyler, Texas. For more information about the church, you can visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Living Acts Church. Good morning, church. It is a, uh, a great honor and privilege again to be worshiping with you all. Uh, I'm always amazed, even though it happens every week, at just how uh, wonderful it is to be amongst the body of Christ and to be worshiping, and it uh, points me forward to the day when uh, God's presence will will be fully manifested, and we won't have to distinguish between the time of gathering with the saints and the time of going into a dark world, but uh, we'll all be together all the time. It's a, a crazy thing to, to think about, but Sunday mornings bring that to, to mind. So we're now going to move into a time of opening up the holy and perfect word of God. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be continuing to go through the Gospel of Luke by looking at the story of reality that he tells. Uh, Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. And in those verses, we saw that Mary went to visit her relative Elizabeth. We know that at the time, Mary uh, was pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth was pregnant with John. And when Mary greeted Elizabeth, John jumped uh, or, or leaped, as the scripture says, inside of her womb to announce that the Messiah had arrived, which is crazy because it already begins to fulfill the prophetic call that God had placed on John's life that, that he would grow up to be one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And then we also got to hear Mary's song of praise in response to this moment. So, Uh, This week's passage is going to focus in on the birth of John the Baptist, but uh, before we read this passage, I want us to remind us of some of those pertinent details that are going to be important for understanding the passage that we're reading today. So we saw already in Luke 1 that John's father was a priest named Zechariah, and he was in the temple doing his priestly duties whenever an angel appeared to him and told him that his wife Elizabeth, who was barren, was going to have a son, and this son would would be one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah's response was that he doubted the message that God had sent to him. And so God removed his ability to speak until the promise was fulfilled, okay? So that kind of catches us up to where we enter into our story today. So if you would now, please stand with me for uh, the reading of God's holy word. In Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. 
And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So if you were here last Sunday, you might immediately pick up on the way that this passage is very similar in structure to the one that we saw last week, right? Both told of an event and then were followed by a proclamation of praise. So last week we got to hear from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this week we hear from Zechariah, the father of John. So Today we're going to, again, kind of do what we did last week in the sense of dividing these passages in half, and then I want to point out three points from each of those halves. If that's uh, confusing, hopefully you can follow along on your notes and it'll, it'll make sense there. So first, let's focus in on Luke 1, 57 through 66. So uh, in these verses, we hear the story of John's birth, and we read that on the eighth day when John was going to be circumcised, they were also going to name him, which was uh, a practice that was adopted by some in this culture. It wasn't necessarily the most, most normative thing, but it also was not unheard of that this would happen. Uh, it's, it's a little bit strange for us to think about, but again, circumcision in Jewish culture was a celebration, right? A, a setting apart of this uh, symbolic tradition. Uh, so you would actually have uh, loved ones and, and neighbors gathered for, for this. I, I kind of think about it as like a post-birth uh, a baby shower almost. <laughs> uh, it's again different from what we're used to, but, but there, were, there was a crowd at this event, right? So all these neighbors and relatives are gathered and they assume that the boy is going to be named after his father, Zechariah. And in this time, it was very common that uh, a, a boy would either be named after his father or his grandfather. And this text suggests definitely that this family took on that tradition. So uh, everyone is surprised um, or expecting the, his name to be Zechariah. But Elizabeth steps in and says to the crowd that his name is going to be John which tells us that Zechariah had found some way to communicate the message that the angel had told him while he was in the temple uh, to Elizabeth, likely through writing of, of some sort. 
Now, the crowd is confused by this, right? They don't know any ancestors in this family named John. So they asked Zechariah his opinion. And Zechariah, who again is still mute, and actually we learn in this passage he's probably deaf as well because they had to make signs to, to communicate to him, which indicates that he probably couldn't hear. Uh, so they reach out to him, and Zechariah writes down that the boy's name would be John. And after he agreed with Elizabeth about the boy's name, says that immediately his tongue was loose. He was, he was able to speak, and right after this happened, he began to bless God. And we read that this event had a strange effect on their neighbors, right? Rightfully so. I mean, you can imagine being here and seeing all this and being like, what is going on, right? Um, they were, they were uh, fearful, it says. It says that they went throughout all of Judea and were talking about these things and wondering about, you know, who is this child going to be with, with such a, a miraculous entrance into the world? So what do we make of this story? Well, I want to draw our attention to three major points that we can glean from this text. The first one is that naming their boy John broke with family tradition and set apart or set John apart for a unique calling. Okay, so names were far more important in this day and age than they seem to be in a lot of places in our world today. Uh, names were intended to communicate something about the child. And specifically, when you think about passing down a name from like father or grandfather to son or mother, grandmother to daughter, uh, th- that was in a way calling that child to live a life that would imitate the life of their ancestor, right? So it was a, a, a practice that had a lot of significance. Now we know that God didn't need to tell Zechariah to change his, his son's name in order to do the mission that he was called to do, right? If John's name would have been Zechariah, he still could have gone where he went and proclaimed what he did. So, so why is it then that uh, God wanted his name to be changed? Well, the answer is because this name change and, and breaking of family tradition set apart John for this unique calling. And it specifically was a calling that wasn't shared by his father, Zechariah. This name would have set John apart for this work that he's calling to do. And when we think about, well, what, what is that calling that, that God has given to John? Uh, we see it actually in his name. Because John, at the time, meant that either God is gracious or God has been gracious. So the reason that God called this boy John was because the, the message that he was sent to proclaim was that God has been gracious to his people. God has been gracious by freely sending the Messiah to fulfill the promises of old. So the second point now that I want us to see is that Zechariah's voice being restored displays God's discipline and restoration. Okay, so as we mentioned earlier, Zechariah had his voice taken away as a judgment for his unbelief. The angel appeared, delivered this message to him. He, he doubted God's work, didn't trust in God, uh, that, that he could do this, this mighty work of, of giving his barren wife a son. But we also read in Luke 1 that Zechariah was a righteous man. So it wasn't the case that Zechariah just didn't believe in God at all or that he didn't have a, uh, a faithful, loving relationship with God. That's not the, the picture that Luke paints for us. We have every reason to, to believe that he truly loved and worshipped God. And yet, Zechariah acted in this sinful, 
disbelief and therefore was disciplined by God. If you were here as we were going through the book of Hebrews, you might remember when Andy preached to us about the discipline of God, that he disciplines us as children whom he loves. So in our passage today, we see that God's discipline upon Zechariah has proved fruitful, right? The fact that that Zechariah agrees to name his his son John shows that God's discipline in his life has, has worked, Right? He believes that his son really will be the, the prophet and the, the forerunner that the angel prophesied him to be. And then we also see another sign of Zechariah's belief in the moment that he gets his voice back. He begins to praise and, and glorify God. I mean, I think about how, how tempting it would have been in that moment to want to, to raise your fist at God, Right? To, uh, to want to, to curse him or to be, to be angry or just annoyed with the fact that he took your voice away for so long, right? But that's not Zechariah's response. He comes out of this discipline and immediately begins to praise God. He has humbly made himself a student of God's discipline. He's learned from those mistakes that he should trust in the wisdom of Yahweh. So I think there's, there's much that we can learn from the story of Zechariah here. Because if you're a, a child of God, and even if you are like Zechariah, and that you could uh, be called generally a, a righteous disciple of Christ, that you, you really do follow him and love him and faithfully pursue him, we still sin, right? We, we still have, have moments of uh, unbelief, right? Maybe even seasons of Uh, of turning our back on God. And when that happens, often God will discipline us. So so we can learn from from this situation. And uh, I think it's so easy in these times to, again, just want to, uh, to, to look at God and ask why, right? To complain about what's going on or uh, if you're, you're like me you throw a pity party when you're in God's discipline you just want to say woe is me why, why is this happening you know the world is, is falling apart but we, we learn from this story of Zechariah that when God disciplines us it's because he loves us it's because he wants us to grow I mean parents think about when you discipline your children right you discipline them with a the goal in mind, or at least you should, right? At your best, you discipline them with a goal in mind. You, you want them to uh, realize and, and see that these uh, dumb decisions that they've made are not healthy, they're not good for them. They're gonna end up getting them in trouble. So you want them to, to grow through that discipline. And I'm, I'm positive that in a, cr- a crowd this size, there's probably many of us right now who when you, you look at your life, you might be saying, I'm in a season of discipline. I, I turn my back from God and, and I'm experiencing those consequences for my sin. So let's together learn from this story today that, that this is a time for us to grow in faith and righteousness and actually be strengthened by God's loving kindness. The final and, and brief point that I want to make uh, with this first half of our passage is that Zechariah represented the prophetic voice in Israel. So for thousands of years, God had been speaking to his people Israel through the prophets of old, okay? But then, around 400 years before the time of our passage, God went silent, okay? There were no prophets in Israel for around four centuries. 
But then as we open the book of Luke, when we read the story of Zechariah, he begins to appear as this figure who, who kind of represents the nation of Israel. Like Israel, he was made silent for a time, but now this, this new day, this new exciting day has arrived. We read that when God gave Zechariah his voice back, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. And this is a huge deal, right? If people were, were prophesying again in the nation of Israel, especially after God had been silent for so long, it means God is up to something, right? He's, he's doing something. He's wanting to communicate a message to his people. And this is certainly, I think, one of those times where we must remember that as we, we read the gospel stories, these are, are stories within one greater story that reaches as far back as time itself. So as we're going throughout this gospel, be on the lookout for the way that God is using the, the people and events of this time to interweave his, his grand story into these, these smaller stories, okay? He loves to do that. And uh, we learn a lot from, from noticing it. So uh, now I want us to move on to focus on the second half of our passage, which is Zechariah's prophecy. This is in Luke 1, 67 through 80. So we read that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he began to prophesy. And this prophecy is dense, and we don't have time to explore every phrase in detail, but I, I want to highlight three major points, I think, that, that jump out at us through this prophecy. First is that the coming ministries of both John and Jesus would fulfill God's covenantal promises of salvation. The coming ministries of both John and Jesus would fulfill God's covenantal promises of salvation. And to, to clarify that as well, obviously we know that, that Christ is the point, right? But, but still, John's role in preparing the way for the Messiah enabled Jesus' ministry to do what God had intended it to do, to accomplish its intended means. So let's... Uh, Let's read the first half of this prophecy, and I'm just going to kind of pause as we're reading that first half and make some comments as we go. So in verse 68 and 69, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Okay, so here Zechariah praises God because he sees that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Right? When you think of, of, of a horn of an animal, you think about that animal's strength, right? that animal's might. So what, what Zechariah is getting at here is that God is raising up a strong man, a warrior from the house of David. Now, if you've uh, been at LAC for a while and you've heard me preach a few times, you might know that I take every chance I get to emphasize the uh, covenantal nature of the biblical narrative. Okay, I, I, I love talking about this. I really... Uh, I, can, I can soapbox on it all day long. And the reason is because I think it's so important if we're going to be good Bible readers, if we're going to commune with God through his word, we need to, to know what it's saying, right? And, and that really is essential. So basically, every time you see David's name outside of the book of First and Second Samuel, I would recommend that you go to 2 Samuel 7 and you reread the Davidic covenant, and you reread that account. Um, the, this is one of the, the huge reasons that David is so prominent in Scripture is because God made this covenant with him. 
So when Zechariah says that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, he's, he's not just saying that this servant will be from the lineage of David. And that's cool because it fills the prophecy that the Messiah would be from, from David's line. He is saying that, but he's also bringing to mind so much more. When he says this, he's saying that Jesus is the one who will fulfill all of the promises within the Davidic covenant. He's the one who's going to bring this true peace and shalom that Israel has longed for. He's the one who is going to build the great house, the great temple, which, spoiler alert, ends up becoming us, the church, right? We are the, the, the housing unit for the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. This is the one whose kingdom will never end. And, and this is crazy too. In, in that passage, it says that he will be like a son to God and God will be like his father. Right? So as an Israelite, hearing this prophecy from Zechariah, you see all of those things. And this is uh, one of those uh, reasons, again, that if we want to be good readers of the New Testament, we have to be steeped in the Old Testament, right? Because if you want to understand the glories of the New Covenant, you have to understand what is it fulfilling, right? Uh, uh, what, what gaps is it bringing together, so let's continue now in verse 70. It says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So once again, go and read 2 Samuel 7. And in the Davidic covenant, you'll see how this was part of the promise that God made to David. That Israel would one day have rest from all her oppressors. And for the Jewish people who had known slavery all too well, and even at this time, uh, were under oppression from the Roman superpowers. I mean, they were desperate, right, to, to be freed from the oppression of their enemies. And of course, as we'll see even more later on, the Messiah came first and foremost not to deliver us from human oppression, at least yet, but from slavery to sin and from the, the powers of darkness, Okay, so in this prophecy, at the very beginning of the gospel, we're already seeing that kind of uh, dual fulfillment, right, of, of spiritual and physical, of already and not yet coming together. And then moving on in verse 72 and 73, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So, so here again, basically, Anytime that you, you read Abraham's name mentioned outside of Genesis, our minds need to go back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 where, where the, these covenant uh, promises are, are being established and where these, these huge events that become a paradigm for all of Israel's history take place. When Zechariah talks about the mercy promised to Israel's father and the oath sworn to Abraham, there are so many glorious promises that, that would come to a Jewish person's mind. Zechariah sees that through the Messiah that God's people will finally enter into the land of promise, which ultimately we know points to the new heavens, to the new earth. He sees that through the Messiah, the people of God will become as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the uh, grains of sand on the seashore. And you, you might ask, well, how so? I mean, well, when we think about what Paul says, it's, it's those who have their faith in Jesus who are the children of Abraham, right? 
So, so if you're a Christian, if you're a believer today, you are a part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You are one of those stars in the sky. I mean, that's crazy, right? So, so we have to get out of this mindset that Old Testament is not our story because it truly is. Zechariah sees that through the Messiah, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are all the covenant promises that believing Israel placed full hope in. And as Zechariah prophesied, they were coming true, albeit in a a unique way, but through Mary's son. This long-anticipated messianic and and covenantal salvation was, uh, was, was coming from God. So the second point that I want us to see in this prophecy is that this salvation will be transformative. As we read on in verse 24, we read that the purpose of this salvation was that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And I love that we get this paradox all in Luke chapter 1. Okay, last week we saw that in, in Mary's song of praise to God after that event took place, that her song is really a juxtaposition between uh, the, the very prideful and arrogant man on the one hand and the man who, who humbly fears God, right? So, so we talked last Sunday, if you remember, about why it's necessary that we are called to fear God, and that's a good thing. But then we read this passage, right? And he says that God delivers us from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve him without fear. I mean, which is it, right? Should we fear God? Should we not fear God? The answer is yes, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm constantly in my mind going back to something that Kyle shared in, uh, in his sermon over Mary and Martha last year, uh, where he, he pointed out these apparent uh, contradictions, and he said, you'll never get this without a relationship, Right? Uh, you won't understand how these things come together if you don't know him. I mean, in the same way with people in your life who you know really closely, they can say things at different times or uh, different contexts that might sound contradictory, but when you know them, you get what they're saying, right? But let's unpack this a little bit more, okay? The difference in the fear of God that Mary spoke about and the fear of God that Zechariah is speaking about is that one is, is born out of humility while the other one originates with sin. Mary spoke about righteously fearing God from a place of of recognizing that he is God and that we are not. That he is creator. He's eternal, omnipotent, judge of the universe, omnipresent and, and utterly holy, right? Zechariah, on the other hand, speaks about a fear of God that exists because we are not yet delivered from our enemies. There's two main things that kind of stick out when you think about deliverance from from enemies here. There's physical enemies and then spiritual enemies. When we think of physical enemies, we would think about in the Old Testament how God would routinely raise up some foreign army to come and judge Israel for their sin, right? So the root of that oppression was still Israel's sin. As long as Israel was rebellious to God, then there would be fear of what judgment might befall them. 
And then on the other hand, we know that the first coming of Christ was to fundamentally de- deal with our, our spiritual enemies, which is our sin and our captivity to the darkness. So as long as we're ex- enslaved to sin, we also experience the, the fear of God's wrath upon us. So this is the kind of fearing of God that we've been freed from. Okay, God is not, not pleased or, or glorified in your fearing him if the reason you're, you're fearing him is because you think he's going to condemn you one day, right? If, if that were the case, if that kind of fear of God would be pleasing, why would he send his son to die for your sins, right? Why, why would he raise his son up to assure you that you have been justified if you're in him? Why would he give us these, these promises of a certain hope of final resurrection on the last day? Right? Jesus came to, to destroy that, that trembling of wondering, how can I be with God? How can I be sure that he loves me, that I'm his? In Romans 5, it talks about how uh, we have peace with God because we've been justified by faith. That peace is something that Jesus purchased for us. It's not pleasing to him to doubt the efficacy of his atoning sacrifice. So we're called to fear God by recognizing that he is infinitely and unimaginably greater than we ever will be. He's greater in knowledge, power, glory, and in his very being. So we're, we're called to fear and, and revere him as king of the cosmos. But the kind of fear that says God is against me is not the fear that is, that is pleasing to him. Because, all, because that, that fear comes through seeing yourself as, as condemned, right? It comes from seeing yourself as under the wrath of God, which the cross came to announce. Good news that all who place their faith in him are no longer under his just wrath. So Zechariah says that we've been given this great salvation to serve God without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Okay, so this salvation is not only intended to rescue us from these external powers of, uh, of darkness, but also it's a transformative salvation that rescues us from the sin and the evil that wages war within us. Zechariah is, is, is pointing us to the fact that the Messiah's work will be a, a cleansing work. It's a, a salvation that transforms us into the holiness and the righteousness of our Savior. So lastly, we see from this prophecy that salvation, or this salvation, will be illuminating. In verse 76, Zechariah continues his prophecy and says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So here, this prophecy is concluded with Zechariah addressing his son, John. He says that John is going to be a great prophet of God. He's gonna go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's gonna give knowledge of salvation to the people and the forgiveness of their sins. And, and it's, it's so true that knowledge does not save anyone alone. 
And yet it's also true there is a knowledge that is necessary for salvation, right? You cannot believe in Jesus if you've never heard of him. You can't, can't trust in someone if you don't know them, right? So we see the significance of John's role in salvation history. He was called to spread this knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Because we, we have to remember too that Israel at this time didn't know exactly how God was going to fulfill those old covenant promises, how he would, would save his people. And John would be a carrier of this news that the Messiah had arrived and that the kingdom of God was coming about through this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And I also don't want us to, to miss the fact that, that as new covenant Christians, we share a similar calling to John, right? I mean, it, it's crazy to think about the fact that we've been given the knowledge of salvation, <laughs> you know? Like, that's nuts. I mean, through a conversation with someone, you can give them the knowledge of salvation. And no, you can't ensure what they do with it, right? God doesn't call you to, to play that role, but what a great privilege and, and task, really, that, that we've been given, that we're called to, to take this knowledge of salvation to all peoples of the earth. In verse 78, we continue to hear about this salvation. It says that because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And I think this is such a perfect picture that we see in this prophecy. For thousands of years, the people have been living in darkness. Every king of Israel, no matter how great had perished and eventually been unfaithful to God. Every prophet, no matter how great, had died and been left behind in Israel. For 400 years now, there, there weren't any prophets. The curse had, had really torn Israel and the world apart. I mean, they had been enslaved and exiled and killed and, and divided. The law had, had revealed to them how wicked and weak they really were. And their best attempts towards peace had, had really only ended in national oppression. You look at the history of the Jewish people and it's, it's heartbreaking, it's tragic. But soon, Zechariah says, the sun will rise upon them from on high. Uh, my parents gifted Hannah and I plane tickets to Hawaii for our honeymoon. And uh, one of the things we were told that we had to do when we went to Maui was to go and see the sunrise on Mount Haleakala, I think is how you say it. Uh, I, th I think it's like an uh, inactive volcano, but I could be wrong about that. I don't remember. But So we woke up at like 4.30, and we drove an hour and a half or whatever up this mountain, and we get up there before sunrise, and it's like freezing cold. Uh, I, I, it, was, it was crazy. It was not that cold outside <laughs> uh, by the place we were at, but we get to the top, and it's, it's just freezing, right? So we're shivering up there waiting for the sun to rise. And it was crazy. I mean, within like 15 minutes, the sun has started to rise and it's crested over the horizon that the clouds have made. And I mean, it is the, the quickest change in temperature that I've ever experienced just naturally um, where this just dark and cold place turned into this warm and just bright embrace, right? It was, it was beautiful. And, and I don't think I'm crazy when I say that the gospel is in a sunrise, you know? And Jesus is that 
sunrise. He is the one who it says in verse 79 will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All the terrors of the darkness, I mean, sin, death, wars, hatred, injustice, disease, disaster, evil, all of these elements will be washed away when the Prince of Peace comes and gives light to all. And that's what Zechariah is saying. That's why he's rejoicing, is he realizes what it means that Mary has this boy. And we today know exactly who the light is. We know that it's Jesus, truly God, truly man, come in, in human flesh to rescue his people from the darkness. That really on the cross, we see Jesus taking the darkness upon himself, that he might remove it from us and then shine light into our hearts. So it's my prayer and my hope that, that this week we would be a people who reflect that light of Christ, right? We would be a people who in the way that we speak and we act around others, that they would, would get a little glimpse of that eternal and heavenly sunrise that we have to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. God, we don't deserve a savior. We don't deserve a righteous king. We don't deserve to be alive at this very moment. And yet we read in Hebrews that you sustain the universe by the word of your power. A creation that has turned its back against you and you lovingly keep it alive. You lovingly speak and breathe life into it through the gospel. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would shine your light into our hearts and into our minds, that you would illuminate the glories of the good news to us, that you would reveal your glory to us, that we might see you and be transformed by you. And God, I pray uh, as we're about to move into a time of the Lord's Supper that, oh, how sweet the sacrifice of your son would be to us, that we would be nourished by you uh, and this wonderful thing you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on Living Acts Church, please visit our website, www.livingactschurch.com, or you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Church.